Welcome to the Outbound Sales Podcast by Uplead. Join us as we share stories, insights, and advice from leading industry professionals to help you succeed in the world of outbound sales. I'm your host, Chris Zuby. Steven, thank you so much for joining. I appreciate you carving out some time here for us. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. So usually I like to kick it open with a couple of little softball questions here. First, maybe you could tell me about like, how did you get into sales? The origin actually has to do with my original background. I have a bachelor's in geology. And for eight years, I was an oil and gas exploration geologist. And that's an industry that's very tied to market prices. And during a downturn in the oil and gas market, some years ago, I got a job as a carpenter. And when I was working as a carpenter, I realized that people tend to make a lot more money selling houses than they do building them or working on the crews that build them. So then I got a real estate license and I wasn't exactly enthralled with real estate in particular, but I kind of caught the sales bug at that point. And that was what drove me to move to New York City and get a job as an outside B2B sales consultant. Uh, and it kind of kicked off from there. So it was sort of partially market forces that drove me into uh, the general sales role. And then I really dove in. I found that I love interacting with people. I'm a very much a people person and uh, meeting new folks and understanding how in different ways I can try and, and help them. I get a... <laughs> A different response there every single time, it seems like. So that's an interesting, wasn't expecting the geology aspect, but totally. very cool. In in your time at LiveRamp, we've seen you go from sales development all the way up to sales director. Like maybe you can give us a glimpse behind the curtain. That's kind of the ideal trajectory that I think a lot of people look for. How did you get it done? Yeah. In a sense, through my story, I would encourage people who might be in their late 20s, early 30s. Do not feel stuck with where you are and do not be afraid to take a jump on an SDR role uh, if you're trying to break into sales. For example, when I joined the SDR team at LiveRamp, I had quite a few years of real world work experience. Uh, I wasn't quite fresh out of college. I had been working in oil and gas for a while and doing other stuff. And the team at LiveRamp recognized that. And because of that past experience, even though it wasn't necessarily in sales or even SDR, business development, they recognized my experience, what my professionalism that I brought to the role. And that made me stick out very quickly and early on as a potential leader. And so then I became a team lead on the SDR team and helping mentor the junior members And from there, I worked my way up to the account executive position and to becoming a sales director. So I don't want to say that it's easier if you're older, because I don't think it is necessarily. Mm -hmm. But I would say, judging from my experience, uh, if you're someone that's out there that's thinking about getting into the business, do not be afraid to do so and bring the experience that you carry into that new role and you will find success. Well, thing. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Now that you're in the sales director role, like what are a lot of your priorities? Like how do you spend most of your day? Yeah, it's definitely a mix. Talking to clients is obviously priority number one. Talking to clients and closing deals. 
as well as working with my colleagues. I've been a, a consistent mentor for the, the new hires that we've been bringing on over at LiveRamp. So checking in with my mentees, helping to field questions from them, as well as helping to mentor the SDR as well, and ensuring that we have a dual prospecting strategy going and that you know I don't leave all the prospecting to the SDR. It's very important that we work together on that. So I think my day is, is split between a chunk where I dedicate to the clients and to pushing my deals forward, a chunk where I dedicate to working with my internal colleagues, my lateral colleagues, as well as the SDRs that I work with and connecting with them, mentoring with them, as well as then in the prospecting field. Is that something that you're very definitively like setting blocks where like you're going to put this time dedicated to this now and then in a few hours you're going to go that direction or does it kind of flow as the day goes i try really hard to do that at the end of the day the clients have to come first so if there are fire drills that are coming in from existing clients or if there are fast turnaround items and deliverables that i need to get back to prospects that will bump out the internal time blocks. But I do try really hard to block that out on my calendar. I find that if you block it out on your calendar, not only will it help force you to do it yourself, but it also keeps that space, that time protected from other people. I do have a lot of internal colleagues who I love and I love to help people. Uh, They will come to me often with different questions. And if you don't protect that white space on your calendar to ensure that you build time for prospecting and for those set internal meetings, then it's easy to lose control. Yeah, definitely. So talk to me a little bit about prospecting. Like, how are you going about it? Like, what's kind of your process? So I love, first off, just checking the headlines, checking the news, checking what's going on with my client companies, as well as with specific individuals. If I see specific individuals have been a guest on a webinar, or they've put out a white paper, or also if they're going to be present at a conference, if they're speaking at a conference, those are the first things I will look for. That's a very specific piece of material that you can bring to them to show, number one, I'm doing my research. I'm following you. I'm watching you. I know where you're going to be and what you're going to be doing. I've been putting in my work. So I like to go there first. Of course, if you don't have specific content or material that they are putting out that you can use, I'll go with by personas. And I will spend a lot of time making sure that I'm targeting the right personas. My prospecting philosophy has a lot to do with personalization. But personalization at scale, mm. you know, that's that's the, the whole game right there. How can you, exactly, how do, you do it? Exactly. Like <laughs> the, the age old question is volume or value and how do you do value at volume? I try to focus really hard on those personas, hunting out those personas wherever they may be and ensuring that the message I send is going to resonate with those personas I hope that answered the question. Yeah, no, absolutely. I guess to pick at it, what I think my real question is, are you doing these in a sequence of campaigns or what does it look like in real life? 
Totally. That's a great question. Let's get down to the the brass tacks here. Mm-hmm. I have campaigns going and I help my SDRs maintain campaigns as well. I'll check in if they want to run messaging past me, if they want to run people and contacts and personas past me. So we have always on campaigns that are based on the personas, sometimes down to the company, but personas most of all. And then I will come over the top with individual personalization to certain people that might be picked out of that cadence or people that we decided to keep as the specific personalized segment out of that campaign. But definitely always on campaigns. As much as personalization is awesome and it's great and we are all doing it and we should always Mm -hmm. do it, you have to be in their inbox in order for them to respond to you. So there's an element of making sure that when that right time comes along, that they are ready, no matter how beautiful your messaging might be and mm-hmm. how well you craft that. If it's not the right time, they're not going to answer. And at the same time, it doesn't have to be the Mona Lisa of messaging. As yeah. long as you're at the top of their inbox and the top of their mind, when it's the right time, they're going to respond. I feel like I, when I think about personalization, like it can kind of go in any number of directions, right? Like, how do you approach it? Is it something where you're looking at like, hey, I saw you went to college here, or I see you have a background in this, and you're just kind of trying to take some kind of a soft intro and use it as leverage? Or I know you had mentioned seeing people at events. What kind of triggers are you looking for? Yeah. So you see a lot of LinkedIn posts and articles now about how, hey, you went to this college, like it's not going to work anymore. And mm-hmm. how, you know, these old tactics, I say old tactics, they're not really that old. LinkedIn hasn't been around that long, but these tactics are kind of getting played out. So you got to try and take it a little bit deeper and letting someone know that you're going to be at a conference. Maybe sometimes even if you're not planning to go yet, but letting them know you'll be there. And if they're ready to meet, then it's time to get on a plane and go to the conference. Not that I do that. (laughs) But but another aspect would be understanding their role and understanding their persona. How can you actually show value? So as much as someone might like, you know, oh, hey, I see you went to college here. You know, you went to Arkansas, go Razorbacks or whatever it is. As long as you can show value, then they have a stronger chance of paying attention. And in a sense, subject lines are really key on that, mm-hmm. more so than canned or contrived personalization just right off of a LinkedIn page. Of course, if their right. LinkedIn page has good content, if they're putting out papers, if they're putting out articles, if you can talk about your feelings and opinions on a topic that they have been speaking on, if that's there, that's solid gold. When that's not there, I try to aim more towards the value aspect as opposed to like canned personalization. Yeah. Kind of on this same subject, do you find yourself prioritizing leads that have something out there that you can latch onto? Are you kind of just picking your leads and then working with what you've got that's available? Is that much of a thought for you? I think yes to both. Because if I do see someone, if I'm looking for leads, I'm cruising through LinkedIn and I see that they're putting out content that resonates with what LiveRamp does, then I will reach out to them and I will talk to them about that. At the same time, if LiveRamp puts out a piece of content that I know will resonate with this persona and this title, then that's what I will send as well. And so you don't see if need I that deeper level of that. personalization. You can just say, hey, I, I see that this 
fits what I believe you do. How does this strike you? Exactly. Yeah. I always try and and I've heard this from a bunch of my leaders over the years and I always try to make sure anytime I'm sending someone anything, I'm providing them a piece of value. Yeah. And I think that, you know, not everybody wants to read marketing content, webinars, you know, whatever it might be. But I do think that there is value there when you can land and connect a piece of content that's actually meaningful for that person and for their role to make them look better, even if it's something that they just take to their staff meeting or to their water cooler if they're actually in the office, then you know it's something to make them look smarter. Yeah. When you're taking a, a you know broad stroke look at your campaigns and everything, are there specific key metrics that you tend to drive for or that you tend to be monitoring more than others? Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, the reply rate, but the positive reply rate, because you can get a lot of replies, but they might not be positive. Not interested. Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which there's value in that. There's value in, you know, weeding out so that you're, you sort of cycle them back to the end and then they'll work their way back up and maybe they'll be interested <laughs> next time. Yeah. <laughs> but honestly, open rate is a really big one for me and making sure that the message that I've taken the time to craft is actually being opened. And so subject lines are huge. How do you get someone's attention enough to get them to open that email and not just go through their morning delete of all the, mm-hmm. the newsletters and things that come along into their inbox? Without uh, you know spoiling any company secrets, what do you do there to try to drive up that open rate? Is it you know all caps? Is it putting exclamation points? Is it dropping emojis? Is there any kind of like secret sauce that you tend to use? You know, we've tried a lot of different strategies and. I find that most of the time, it's the most simple subject lines that will get people to open it. We've tried to put the first name and the subject line with the comma and the thing in trying to get people to register for our conferences, you know, in big caps, free registration, complimentary ticket. And that's fine. If they're going to come to the conference, then they're going to come. But for example, with LiveRamp, where I work right now, some of the best subject lines that I've ever had in terms of open rates, the subject was live ramp. <laughs> Go figure. Yeah. <laughs> like not even putting their company name in there. Other times I will just do like their company name and at live ramp, but oftentimes it's just live ramp. And it gets a phenomenal open rate. Yeah. I suppose if I was on the receiving end, I would just be like, is this important? Is this something I need to be looking at? Like, what is right. this? You know, like I don't want to miss something makes- that's important. Exactly. If it makes you say, what is this? Then you click on it to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Very interesting. I like that. What key skills do you feel any good SaaS company needs to succeed in outbound sales? What are some of those key uh, internal values? Internal values, persistence. Absolutely. That's always number one. Persistence, but thoughtful persistence. And imagine yourself in that person's shoes what's going to resonate with them. I think that the ability to be empathetic in that way and to be thoughtful in your persistent outreach is a very strong key to success. And then of course, as part of that persistence is the ability to not get discouraged. It's very easy to get discouraged. We all receive those messages, take me off your list, unsubscribe, what is wrong with you? 
You're right, terrible. or worse, right? Exactly, or worse. <laughs> we'll keep it PG here <laughs> for the podcast. But the ability to shrug that off, that falls into persistence, as well as then from deal closing perspective. You can spend so much time getting so close and then some unknown unknown swings through and crashes the deal or maybe the market takes a wild turn maybe mm-hmm. russia decides to invade ukraine and everything goes crazy yep there's any number of wild variables that when you've done everything right they can still derail your success and understanding that that is part of the game that's part of the job and you pick up and you keep going. One of my managers, she's a VP at LiveRamp here, her name's Tara Blackman. And she's really, really good about always saying, give yourself the space to grieve that deal and then push it away and then move on to the next one. And after you've worked through those emotions, then it's time to pick up and get on to the next one because there's always going to be a next one. Yeah, I love that philosophy. I mean, it is a far too easy trap as a salesperson to carry that over, even if you're trying your hardest not to. Sometimes even because you're trying your hardest not to, it will carry over with you. So like really letting it fall off the back is kind of the only option that you have if you want to go into that next conversation with any glimpse of a chance to close that next deal or have that successful conversation, whatever that is that you're trying to accomplish. Like I said it a million times, like tone is is everything and people can hear the way that you feel when you're talking to them. And people like to talk to people that are happy, that are energetic, that are inquisitive, right? And if you don't carry those things with you, like good luck having a, a solid conversation or, or building a good relationship with somebody. It's just going to be all the tougher. Yeah, Chris, you're absolutely right. And I think what ties into that is also some soul searching in those moments and to understand while you might have done everything right for that deal that still didn't close, what can you still learn from that situation? And early on in sales careers, sometimes that's what people learn is that you can do everything right and you can Mm -hmm. still not close the deal. But being able to look inward as well as understanding these external factors, but looking inward to understand, okay, what can I learn from this? How can I protect myself and protect this revenue better the next time? You know, if you come away with a few key aspects where you can help yourself improve, then it's a little bit less of a loss. Absolutely love it. On that note, I mean, it could be as simple as just a period of reflection, but do you think that there are any best practices when it comes to that right there? Like, how would you put that into motion if you're, you know, an SDR or an AE listening to this? There's the self-reflection. There's being honest with yourself, but there's also your colleagues. And I know that in some sales circles and in some companies, it's strikingly competitive and you might not want to go to your lateral colleagues with showing any sort of weakness, if you will. Mm -hmm. But I do feel really lucky that at LiveRamp, and I know there are other places with this type of a culture, we're extremely collaborative laterally with our colleagues and with our leaders. So I think that the ability to be open and honest and talk about the deals that didn't close, in addition to how the deal was won, 
type of a, a presentation where someone talks about the success, being open and honest in talking to your peers and talking to your leaders about the deals that didn't close. That's how you're really going to uncover the gaps that you might have missed where someone else's eyes might be able to see that and to pinpoint it. And of course, it really helps if you're doing this during the deal cycle, getting a few other sets of eyes onto the deal, getting another set of eyes. Another colleague of mine, his name's Andy Klarman. We invite each other to our calls to shadow. Uh, You know, we'll just be another set of eyes that's sitting in the background. They say, hey, they said this. Did you notice that? And, you know, we'll debrief after the call to make sure that whenever we have time, there's not always time for that. But if there's openings, get another person to listen to stuff. And there are also tools that do the sales recordings, the recordings of the calls. And Gong is one of them. You know that there's yeah. some other ones out there. But those are super helpful to listen to how other people are selling and yeah. how they're selling your own product. I love that too. Like, I want to kind of maybe just chime in and add like, building that type of a culture where somebody feels like they're able to be honest. Like, I think that that's kind of a two-way street. Like that falls on the individual contributor. That's the one that's dealing with the prospect that wants to get that deal closed. Like you have to be able to, as uncomfortable as it might feel, tell the truth, right? Like, I know I messed up this one thing. I know I screwed up this. Like I didn't run my process perfectly. I may have missed this type of a thing, but it's a two-way street again, where whoever that manager is or whoever's on the, the leadership side, they need to be able to build a culture where that person feels like they're able to say that, right? Where they can admit that they've made a mistake and not get totally squashed for it. Exactly. You're spot on with that assessment. And it is a two-way street. Absolutely. And it's a muscle that needs to be worked and that needs to be practiced. The ability to self-criticize in a constructive way, to take criticism in a constructive way, and also be able to deliver helpful criticism in a constructive way. Not everybody possesses that grace, but it would be wonderful if they did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, 100%. And then being able to take that construction in stride and still kind of having that gleaming attitude, like nothing's going to knock me off of totally. my block, regardless of what you tell me, you know, like I'm here for the good, the bad, the ugly, but it's not going to change my demeanor, regardless of what it is that you tell me. Exactly. And for ultra confident type A salespeople, it can be hard sometimes to take that constructive feedback in stride. And I think that that self-reflection really helps with that as well. I know that I try and do this with all of my relationships, not just business and professional and with friends. But if somebody tells me something and my immediate reaction is to feel defensive, I pause I pause and I breathe. And before I react in that defensive way, I try really hard, and this has taken a lot of practice, to flip it back around and say, okay, now why are they feeling this way? And that works in interpersonal relationships, but also in professional relationships where you're talking about steps in deal flow that you might have missed, steps in qualification that you might have missed. That's something that I still struggle with sometimes. And and I have these open conversations with my managers that I know I struggle sometimes with true full cycle deal qualification and mid-cycle requalification where I really want to believe it to be true. We have these open conversations and honest conversations about that. And if I start to feel myself getting defensive, I pause and I flip it around 
And mm-hmm. I try to approach it, try to approach it from an objective perspective. Yeah. As the individual contributor, you could easily see yourself like, and this is kind of going back to part of our conversation earlier, like I did everything right and I still didn't get the deal. However, there's this other example of when I didn't do everything right and I did get the deal. So like, how do you proceed to kind of knowing that there's this gray area and a lot of times that deal is going to be a deal regardless of what you do. So how do you balance that idea as the individual? What would you say there? I think doing the same type of self-reflection for the closed one deals as the closed loss deals and creating a framework for that reflection to understand, okay, maybe I got the goose that laid the golden egg this time, but where did I still mess up? And where could I have lost this deal? Where did I leave myself open? Where was I vulnerable, but because they needed this so bad, it was going to close anyway. What happens next time when it's not that clear to the client? How do I ensure that I repeat the success while also minimizing those vulnerabilities? I love that. I think that might be the best thing we've come to today. I love that idea. Just kind of looking back at your close ones that you have won and where a lot of people will just close the book and say, I I did it, you know? I did it, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah. Conversely to what you did a lot of good things in this one that you lost, like you did a lot of bad things, maybe not, you know, bad things, but things that you could have done better and you still won it. So just taking an even eye across the board, I think that that's absolutely money. So awesome. We're getting a little bit close towards the end of our time. So I wanted to hit you with a couple of closing questions here, not the buying type, but um, (laughs) if you could offer one piece of wisdom to a growing outbound sales team, what would you offer? Be thoughtful and keep going. In one sentence, that's what I would offer to expand on that a little bit more is be empathetic to your buyers. The world is a scary place right now. and We have to understand how they are feeling and what are the factors that are driving them to make their decisions. Being thoughtful in how you approach that will do wonders for breaking down the trust barriers, building up your credibility. I think it's so important. And we didn't even touch on this in any of the previous conversation. So I'm glad that we were able to hit this now. The research that you put in to even the first call with a prospect that you've never spoken to before, do the best that you can to know their industry. Do the best that you can to already come with your ideas of what's scaring them right now, what's motivating them right now, what are their peers doing right now. And if you show that you are a true consultative you know, let's call it like a fly-by-night expert in their field, uh, then all of a sudden you've won their trust early on and it's not something that you have to claw to try and get. Show them that you're thoughtful and that you're able to feel what they're feeling. And that will be a huge asset when you're navigating really difficult deals through very difficult economic times. So I love it. In a different direction a little bit, I mean, over the course of even the past 10 years or whatever, like sales has kind of flipped on its head from a technology perspective, like stuff that was never available before is now right in everyone's face. And most sales teams are using automation, technology, et cetera. 
A, what is your opinion of the way that technology has kind of become infused with sales? And what do you see the future of tech and sales, technology and sales looking like? I, for one, I'm a big fan of the technological advancements. It's definitely caused teams to need to think on their feet more. How can you differentiate yourself in a world where you mentioned the automation, for example, where every single SDR, you know, Monday through Friday can send a thousand emails with the click of one button. Hmm. So how are you going to differentiate yourself, but lean into that technology, lean into the new waves of doing things? I'm not saying necessarily fads, but you can see what's true and what's not. And that goes back to the idea of like the canned outreach or the canned personalization. Our buyers can definitely see those differences between using technology just en masse without putting thought into it versus those who are using technology really to their advantage by continuing to maintain that human element with the technology. You mentioned how buyers like to buy from people that have a really positive attitude. They like to buy from humans. And I don't think that's something that's going to go away anytime soon. So while I don't have as much of a specific to drill into on this, keeping that human element while also fully leaning into and utilizing the automation and the technology that's at our disposal is going to be a, a positive balance. I fully agree. We quick plug on our uh, YouTube channel. We did a uh, video where we took a look at like chat GPT conducting email sequences for us. I mean, I did a little bit of like monitoring and kind of checking to see like right. how these emails looked and like they looked solid, right? They had the bones of a good email, but the performance just absolutely flopped in comparison to everything else that we've been doing, which I think part of what you said earlier with everything being kind of short and sweet and succinct, like there's something about that. And these emails were definitely not that, uh, <laughs> but you're never going to be able to replace the human element of it. And like you said, you know, sales is people buying from people and nobody really likes to buy from a vending machine. You know, it doesn't have the same uh, appeal. So I fully agree. And I don't know if you're ever going to be able to replace that human element, the emotional aspect. Exactly. And I'm a, I'm a big proponent of personality and the emotional aspect and being yourself and being human in your sales process. So I agree with you. I, I don't think, well, as of right now, I don't think they're going to be able to. It's going to get that. there. It's going to get there. <laughs> no, amazing. Really good stuff. I know we're coming right up against the clock here. So really, really appreciate the time. I thought this was an awesome conversation. So anything you wanted to on your side, quick plug before we uh, part ways? Well, first of all, Chris, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure getting to chat with you today and to share my experience a little bit. I'm no expert, but, you know, like in the same advice that I give to the teams out there, I give to myself, you know, I continue to try and be thoughtful and keep going. If anybody is out there looking for data connectivity, talk to LiveRamp. <laughs> There's a plug right there. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't be complete without it. Yeah, how about that? <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you again. Thanks so much. This was brilliant stuff. So really appreciate the time that you carved out here today. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thank you. The Outbound Sales Podcast is brought to you by Uplead, the premier source for accurate B2B data you need to connect with and close your most valuable buyers. With a focus on data accuracy, Uplead offers a 95 plus percent accuracy guarantee. 
To learn more about how Uplink can help you find accurate B2B data of the people you want to do business with, visit our website at www.uplink.com. Don't forget to search for the Outbound Sales Podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts to stay updated on all of our latest episodes. Thank you for listening, and we hope you find value in each episode.